Hello and welcome to Note Doctors Summer Shorts. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In these short episodes, we will be sharing with each other and all of you musical examples and teaching tips covering a wide range of topics. So if you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. All right, welcome back to another episode of Note Doctor Summer Shorts. This is our last summer short for the summer, as uh, we are going to be coming to you with our second season, beginning in September with new guests we're really excited about, uh, and to share more uh, knowledge and more information about theory and theory pedagogy. But today, on our last summer short of the summer, we're going to spend a little time talking about our favorite pieces or songs or music that break the rules. We're always hearing from our students, you know, complaints like, okay, we learned these things and then these things, now we think they're rules. We think that they are, you know, fixed in concrete. And then they learn that, wait, the rules are, can be broken. And they're broken, in fact, all the time. And that's actually pretty cool. <laughs> That's what makes it interesting. <laughs> right, right. And and there are certain pieces and certain um, musical idioms that I think we all kind of latch onto, like that we like that are like, oh, these are really cool things that are break kind of the, the traditional rules of how, how music is taught. And of course, that's in scare quotes, uh, as you can't see. Um, <laughs> so we're going to talk about our own favorite things that break the rules. And so, Ben, you're going to start us off with uh, how are you breaking the rules here? Well, someone that shares the same first two letters of the name as Ben, which would be Beyonce. Uh, we're going back to <laughs> Destiny's Child. They didn't know I was going to say that. No. <laughs> uh, I love this song. My goodness. It what takes me way it? back. It's Bills, Bills, Bills. So some of y'all will recognize, I'm sure. I know this is... Not current anymore, I'm fully aware, but I still think it's a great song, and I think the fact that it breaks the rules makes it cool. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's take a listen. I think if you just started from the beginning, Paul, um, okay. that would be great, and then I can talk about it. At first we thought it had a Taking me places I ain't never been But now you're getting comfortable and doing those things you're doing Boy, you're slowly making me careful Things your money should be handling And now you have to use my heart Got it all day and don't feel the same And you have the audacity to even come and step to me That's the wholesome thing for me Until you get your check and please You try to live Coming up on the chorus. <laughs> oh man, you're taking me back to the '90s. Jamming Ooh. out, you're jamming yeah. out as hard as we are. Then kudos. I am. I'm jamming out with my friends Mitch, Sean, and uh, Ty back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I was going to talk about how the 
chorus breaks some of the rules that I would say, for example, to my Theory 1 or Theory 2 classes. You probably heard it's in B minor, and the chorus does start in B minor with Can You Pay My Bills? And it kind of creates, in my opinion, this is an opinion statement, this effect of like cascading of bills just coming down, you know, on, on the protagonist. And, and uh, what happens is you get B minor, you know, which would be the minor one, and then you get the diminished, so seven diminished in root position, which I would say, oh, seven diminished, you know, that never really occurs in root position. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Don't put a seven diminished, put a seven diminished six. Uh, that proceeds directly to A, which would be the subtonic, um, but you'll notice that uh, in the outer voice lines, you know, you get perfect fifth, diminished fifth, perfect fifth, and then you get a four six. So basically E major over G sharp. And then directly to an arpeggiated uh, six chord or a G chord. And then directly to five. Directly parallel down. Um, and I think the effect is very cool uh, in the outer voices. I like to tell my students that a chromatic bass line, a lot of times if you're ascending, like let's say so, la, ti, do, um, you would usually see a four in inversion and a five in inversion. You don't just put seven diminished to one. Um, but, you know, that doesn't happen every time. And if you want to create this effect of like this cascading downward of, of bills and things. And I just think it's a really cool example of a, a chromaticized bass line in minor um, where you get like that, that seven diminished. Um, it's to very, very striking right after you um, hear that minor one chord. Pretty cool. Yeah, and that subtonic, that A major chord, that brightness after after that diminished chord is great. You know, you could just pair that with uh, Purcell's Dido's Lament, right? You know, <laughs> there you go. bass line going down. <laughs> I love that, actually. That's a great pairing. Why not? <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. All right. Jen, tell us a little bit about what, you, what you've picked that breaks the rules. Okay, well, I picked a Brahms example. So... Oh. <laughs> Come on, he's That's a right. master. Another B, Beyonce, Brahms. <laughs> Brahms, yeah, <laughs> okay. exactly. Bieber. Um, uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I chose the piano piece, Opus 118, number two. It's an intermezzo in A major, and it actually breaks a lot of rules. It does all of it pretty subtly. So um, we probably could just listen to kind of the opening A section. And then I'll All talk right. about it. Have your Kleenex ready, people. Oh, I know.
All right. Well, starting literally right where we left off, that is a common tone modulation that is not a chromatic median. It goes from one to the key of six using C sharp as the common tone from A to F sharp. So <clears throat> right out the gate, this piece breaks the rules because it has an anacrusis that's on one and then goes to four on the downbeat of the first measure. So I love to use this piece to talk about how Brahms really subtly introduces instability right from the beginning of the piece. And that contributes to the feeling of sort of nostalgia that rings throughout this whole, you know, actually really this whole cycle of mm -hmm. inter intermezzi, but this one especially. Um, so you start out with a, a one anacrusis that goes to four. So the key is immediately sort of unsettled right out the gate and yet somehow not that's kind of the magic of Brahms is that he at the same time follows the rules and breaks them kind of magically all at once uh, that's probably why he's so beloved even still and then of course um this is this piece is what I call a compound ternary people have different names for that but so basically a large scale ternary where each of the individual sections has their own small form and in the b section of the of the first what we just heard he uses metric shift and modal mixture um modal mixture of course not breaking any rules but the metric shift he shifts the the beat over by one and he does it really seamlessly you kind of don't even notice it um in fact i have students count and then look at the score when i mm -hmm. teach this piece to show them how modal shift can be done or metric shift can be done without unsettling you really at all it's like all of a sudden just one is somewhere else um in the music and uh but i think my favorite thing that this piece does that sort of quote unquote breaks the rules is that it has this very very problematic return in that opening a section that we just listened to which of course brahms has lots of very famous problematic returns of his a sections or recapitulations or whatever in this case um you get a long uh dominant pedal it builds all the tension that you need and then the tension completely fizzles out and the theme tries to return four times in the bass. And it finally, it can't, it's like it can't make it happen as the lowest voice. And so it sinks into minor. And then the soprano voice kind of dramatically takes over and reintroduces the A theme, except now it's inverted. So getting the students to find the return and where it happens in this piece is really wonderful because a lot of times they struggle to find it or they find all the things I just described and they don't understand why kind of this return is broken or it's not working. Like, mm -hmm. well, it kind of comes back down here and then, it, you know, this sounds <laughs> like it, but it's not quite right. And so getting them to see kind of the cleverness of what he's done there with that problematic return. The other we didn't hear this part, but when he brings back the whole A section at the very end of the piece, he does it by the chord that introduces it, which should, of course, be a five chord, is actually a seven, half diminished seven of five over a dominant pedal. And then you just return to the A section and it works. It sounds great. So we break lots of rules here. Mm -hmm. And in case you have not studied this piece, you should go do it immediately. But also... The, the large B section that's in the middle, we stopped right before that part, has an incredible canon mm. that happens um, lots of different ways in that B section. It's the same canon, but he does it. 
he inverts it. He does he does it all sorts of amazing things with it in the B section of the piece. This really simple kind of four or five mm-hmm. note canon that shows up all over the place. So this is a really rich piece to teach from. Yeah. And this is Opus 118. And Number this two. is one of his mm-hmm. last pieces. Is that is that mm-hmm. right, Jen? Yeah. Yeah. And I think if my memory serves me that maybe he sent these in a letter to Clara Schumann. Mm, um, it's juicier then. Yeah, it does indeed. <laughs> um, because, of course, like he would sometimes send her kind of like jokes because she had much smaller hands than him. So all the the spots where you have to roll all these chords in this piece uh, could be about that. But I could also be remembering that incorrectly. So if there's a musicologist out there who's very angry at me right now, I'm very sorry. (laughs) But I think I think that this piece is one of the ones that was sent to her in like a letter. Well, we have yet to receive an angry email from a listener. So maybe this will be this will be our chance. This might be it. (laughs) There we go. But uh, yeah, this piece is such a beautiful piece. And it really, you know, thinking about this coming at the end of Brahms' life, whether it was the la- one of the last pieces, I mean, it is one of the last pieces. And it's, mm-hmm. it's knowing that, and you can hear that nostalgia, mm-hmm. and just the the craftsmanship is just so masterful. Yeah, the, the canon in that B section is, it just, yeah. it's like, a, it's like a, a spiral it just like keeps on going and going and he finds new ways of doing it and mm-hmm. i love that that return you're right it's one of those things where if you're just looking in the music okay where's that a section I'm like you, you're not going to find it but mm-hmm. when you listen to that piece that moment when that soprano comes in on that like that mm-hmm. tito la or whatever yeah tito mm-hmm. la i mean that's just a breathtaking moment and that's the moment that you're supposed to hear as a return even though it's not technically the return in the way mm-hmm. that it was before, but it's the moment that just grabs you. Like you can't help but like stand up, you know, sit sit up when you hear that because it's just so so beautiful. Because you're right, he just kind of sinks lower and lower because that minor four chord, right, <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. flagel sound, and then all of a sudden, you know, the sun comes out. Love it. All right. Well, I kind of broke the rules on this. <laughs> On this episode <laughs> about breaking the rules because I couldn't think of just one piece. Uh, so I thought about something that I find often in uh, popular music that kind of breaks the rules. And I found a term for it, but basically it's your five of five going to four instead of five. Um, I've called, I've seen it called the pop rock Lydian progression. We talked to Ben, you talked a little bit about that. Well, uh, with the Bruno Bar- Mars example of uh, when I was your man, how yep. the beginning begins on that D major chord or D seven, and then it goes to an F chord. And this, of, this of course, is breaking the rules because you, a five of five, a major two chord, should go to the five, um, but it doesn't. In this um, example, the example that I have actually I have a number of them. Um, the earliest kind of a pop examples, at least this is what I found on a blog was eight days a week by the Beatles. And so they're in the key of D. So you're going, they go D E seven G and then back to D. And this type of progression basically uses that same model of, you know, the one major two, four, and then back to one. There are some variations on that, but that is super common. Um, so this is from 1965. So we're going to keep the B uh, theme going here. So Beyonce, Brahms, and the Beatles. And so you'll hear it right away. It's in the verse. You'll hear the um, D, then the E7, then the A.
All right, so you have this really kind of cool lift that happens when you have that uh, at five of five, and then it kind of settles in to that uh, that four chord, kind of this uh, uh, ca- uh, plagal cadence. And this is uh, happens throughout, you know, uh, popular music. So some songs that have it in there: "The Boys Are Back in Town," "Thin Lizzy," 1975, uh, "Ride Captain Ride" by the band Blues Image. I think those are one hit wonder. Uh, the Beatles used this progression a couple other times. Uh, also famously in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. They had that progression. If we get into the 90s, we want to get back to those 90s and those high school days. A little bit of Oasis <laughs> has that same progression mm-hmm. on the song All Around the World. So here it is. We're in the key of B. And I think we're in the when we get into the chorus. <laughs> Same thing. All right. And so you get that that shift up and that kind of settling back down. And then the last one, because we want to keep um, our PG rating and no explicit ratings on our um, on our our podcast is we're going to listen to Forget You by CeeLo Green. Of course, that's not the original title, uh, but this song is in the key of C and has a regression C, D, F. And so again, uh, the same progression. And this one is this is cool because it also has this really cool chromatic bass line that just kind of walks up by half step the whole way through. So you can really hear that progression happening. And uh, so here we go. Here's a little uh, CeeLo. <laughs> What's striking about this progression is in with these songs it's, that's pretty much the progression for the entire song a lot of the times and this just yeah, has this Luke. real mm-hmm. easy way of just kind of cycling through you know there's always this kind of feeling of excitement when that two comes in and then uh settling back and if we want to get really theoretical because we are note doctors <laughs> we can think of we can apply some neo-romanian theory to this right because mm-hmm. we are moving to two chords that are a third away so we can think of this as a pr transformation so we're going from you know if we're thinking in the key of c that d major you make it parallel d minor then you go to the relative that's f so if you want to think about you know Get on Neo Romanian and the Tonets. So that's your PR combo <laughs> transformation there. Um, just want to throw that in there. But I think that's, uh, I, I, I think it's a fascinating thing that it happens so frequently and is so breaking the rules that we teach our students is, you know, five, five goes to five. And a lot of the times it doesn't. Totally. Have any, have either of you seen the, Hans Zimmer Masterclass trailer where he talks about writing film music. Yes, I've seen that many a time. Oh my gosh, it yes. comes up on my YouTube all the time as a t- perfectly targeted ad, I'm sure. Uh-huh. And he has this spiel that he goes into about how you can make a film score on an iPad in New York and all this. And then he talks about breaking the rules. If you're not breaking the rules and you're not doing anything, you're not writing music. <laughs> But yeah, it kind of reminds me of that, this episode to Hans Zimmer there. Yes, I, I, I've seen that trailer many times. That's also where he's like, 
well, yeah, all he need is an iPad and a microphone. Yep. And then he cuts to, well, when we were doing the uh, Dark Knight uh, soundtrack, I had 24 French horns all around me in this uh, concert hall. Like, wait, I thought I could just do it on my laptop. And now you're, you know, bringing in half of the horn section from the West Coast to play your Brahms. You know, Who doesn't your... want 24 French horns around Come on. And I think Brahms is the right term. Is that the technical term for the Brahms, you know, the, the horn kind of thing from Inception or... Yeah, you know I don't talking know. About? There's no. a specific sound. Brahms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Brahms. That's what totally, it is. Yeah. Nice. So... So yeah, break. (laughs) So breaking rules, and I guess maybe we can kind of close out with, you know, how do we handle, you know, uh, those situations in our class? Is it an issue of maybe setting the students up in the wrong way to think that these rules are fixed, Um, or is it okay to have these rules um, for students to understand in fundamentals and theory one, and then? kind of gently introduce them to kind of the, the, the border that gets a little fuzzier. What are your thoughts on kind of navigating that? Because that's, that is kind of part of the life cycle of a theory student is they learn these rules. And at some point, you know, you have this uh, existential crisis and we, uh, and we have to deal with that. So I make it clear on the, from the very beginning, basically that all of these rules are meant to be broken And I try to scaffold examples that we look at in class, starting from very early on, we'll look at an example that, or many examples until they're, they're good at it, you know, that absolutely follow the rules and do exactly what you expect. And then once they can handle that pretty well, I will throw an example at them that does something other than what you expect. And we'll talk about why right? Why does it do that? What was the effect on you when you expected one thing and got another? And so I try to make it clear from the very beginning that yes, I said no parallel fifths. That doesn't mean nobody ever in the history of music wrote parallel fifths. In fact, Bach himself wrote parallel fifths. Mm -hmm. So, but you have to kind of understand what expectation you're building on before you can successfully subvert that expectation and do it in a way that's interesting. And some musicians figure out how to do that without all the book knowledge, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the musicians we listen to today probably did that from their gut with their ear sort of thing. But of course, the whole point of a music degree is to know what you're doing, <laughs> to be mm-hmm. to be doing things with a lot of intention and to understand you know, what it is that you're looking at and creating and all of those things. So I try to talk about it exactly like I just did, which is to say, uh, all of these rules are made to be broken. We'll start out by really conquering what they sound like and how they create expectations. And then we're going to immediately, or as, as soon as we can, we're going to talk about what happens when you break, break them, right? When you give something that the listener didn't expect and why you might choose to do that. I love that. Yeah, I love that, Jen. And I'm very similar to you in that way, I think. But looking back, I guess, over the last, let's say, five or six years of my teaching, I would say from then up until now, now I go very quickly from what the quote-unquote rules would be to breaking the rules. I go Mm -hmm. a lot more quickly than I would have, let's Mm -hmm. say, six years ago or something. Um, And I try to introduce two things to them right from the get-go. That one every quote-unquote rule is style-derived. 
So like you could derive an entirely new set mm -hmm. of rules just based on different styles. And like we can look at those different styles and get different stylistic guidelines. So I actually just say stylistic guidelines a lot of the time now mm. um, as like a way of introducing things like um, are we following a certain style guideline from this or are we following, following a certain style guideline from this other thing? Um, and I think the other way I like to introduce it is, and Jen kind of said this as well, why you would do such a thing, right? Like um, kind of like actually weirdly the Hans Zimmer thing is like, well, if you're trying to go for a nostalgia feel or if you're trying to go for a remembrance or loss um, or broken relationship versus relationship that's healthy, those two things can be depicted in different ways. And how are we going to do that? Like I definitely have had my students listen to Forget You and then recompose the beginning to Forget You or take Bruno Mars and rewrite the beginning of Bruno Mars. And it doesn't sound right because it doesn't fit the idea, um, that kind of rhetorical, poetic idea. Uh, and I'm trying to even more focus more actually on that second one, even more so sometimes than, than the style um, thing because it's just so much more, I guess, artistic, you know, um, to think about the human aspects and things that we're trying to capture but yeah it's kind of deep it got kind of deep there but i really truly believe that <laughs> it's true mm -hmm. i love to send my students when we start part writing which we actually start fairly late we start it in theory too um and when we start part writing i love to send my students they all sing in choir because we don't have an instrumental program so i love to send them to choir rehearsal and be like when you're singing today in rehearsal i want you all to find something that doesn't do what i told you you have to do and see if you can figure out why. So for example, there's tons of unison in choir music. You know, of course, yep. when we teach part writing, they're never supposed to have parallel unisons or parallel octaves, but it happens all the time in real choir music. And so it helps them, I think, if you point out like, yeah, you're, you're gonna find, you know, three chords out there that don't go to four or six. What is the effect of that? You're Calling gonna find- out Eric Whitaker right now. Well, and lots of other people. It's in the doxology. <laughs> um, there's one in the doxology that goes, where does it go? Oh, I don't. I'm trying to remember. Like six, maybe it's at six goes to three and then back mm. to six. And six isn't supposed to go to three, right? I think of Bruno course, Mars again, does breaking that too. the rules. We keep oh, on yeah. bringing up Bruno Mars. Actually, he does that when I'm your man. Yes. <laughs> when I was your man, he goes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so pointing out those moments and talking about why I think is way more valuable than trying to pretend they don't exist, which is often what young teachers get caught in is a feeling of like, well, yeah, sometimes stuff like that happens, but this is how it is most of the time, right? Rather than just being like, no, th these are the kind of set expectations when you listen to this kind of music. And then always there's going to be something that surprises mm -hmm. you and you know what is the effect of that or why might it be there sometimes the answer is just it sounds good yeah right? <laughs> I mean, that's part of the <laughs> reason why great. parallel fifths aren't appropriate is because they don't sound good in that right style. in that context they right. sound terrible yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so and i like to tell students to remind them that theory comes second in almost mm -hmm. every instant you know yep. other than you know 12 tone music and you know right um theory comes after the music. And so theory is trying to uh, make this music that's written over vast period of time, over uh, different countries, different type of people, fit into these containers that 
you know, these these containers can be pretty big, but there's still things that are going to co- fall out of those containers and not fit really neatly. Um, and so reminding them that, yeah, theory is important, but it always comes after the music. So most composers aren't thinking about, you know, oh, what theory am I following? And I need to follow that. No, it's, it's the other way around. Exactly. I love that imagery. Like, we take all of the music from a particular style period, we stick it in a laundry bag, and like every... <laughs> Every piece of music in that laundry bag is going to be like sticking a tiny elbow out somewhere, yes. right? And like expanding the bag out in directions that it looks like it shouldn't go. Yeah. So I love that. Yep. That's what that's what we're doing. We're trying to stash all the music into a laundry bag. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, this has been fun. We have really enjoyed being able to have these little short episodes and chat about things that we're excited about, share ideas and. Uh, and kind of get excited for this next school year that we're going to be um, starting up in a little bit. So we will be back soon um, with our season two episodes. And so join us for those. 